Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 118, Worst Case Scenarios. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to revisit three classic episodes where we discuss times in Boston's history when disaster struck. We'll start with episode 21, which spotlighted the 1897 subway explosion on Tremont Street. Episode 39 discussed the tragedy at the Coconut Grove, followed by episode 91 on the collapse of the Pickwick nightclub. The key takeaway this week? We should all be thankful for modern building codes, safety measures, and government oversight. But before we talk about these three disasters, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is My Dearest Friend, Letters of Abigail and John Adams, for those of you who may need a last-minute Valentine's Day gift. The book description is as follows. In 1762, John Adams penned a flirtatious note to Miss Adorable, the 17-year-old Abigail Smith. In 1801, Abigail wrote to wish her husband John a safe journey as he headed home to Quincy, after serving as president of the nation he helped create. The letters that span those nearly 40 years form the most significant correspondence and reveal one of the most intriguing and inspiring partnerships in American history. As a pivotal player in the American Revolution and the early Republic, John had a front-row seat at critical moments in the creation of the United States, from the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, to negotiating peace with Great Britain, to serving as the first vice president and second president under the U.S. Constitution. Separated more than they were together during this founding era, John and Abigail shared their lives through letters that each addressed my dearest friend, debating ideas and commenting on current events while attending to the concerns of raising their children, including a future president. Full of keen observations and articulate commentary on world events, these letters are also remarkably intimate. This new collection, including some letters never before published, invites readers to experience the founding of a nation and the partnership of two strong individuals in their own words. This is history at its most authentic and most engaging. We'll share a link in this week's show notes in case you need to purchase a copy for your own Mr. or Miss Adorable. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring the National Park Service lecture, A Revolutionary Harbor, Boston's Maritime Underground Railroad. On Wednesday, February 20th, from 5.45 to 7 p.m., join the National Park Service and Boston Harbor Now in the second of three winter lectures exploring our revolutionary harbor. During the years preceding the American Civil War, Boston served as one of the most important stops on the Underground Railroad. Did you know that many fugitives from enslavement came to Boston by stowing away on ships from southern ports? Join National Park Service Ranger Sean Quigley to explore the untold stories of men and women making daring escapes to freedom through Boston Harbor. Light refreshments and drinks will be provided. This free event will be held at Atlantic Wharf at 290 Congress Street. We'll post a link to register in the show notes. And now it's time for this week's main feature. First up, episode 21. On March 4, 1897, a great explosion rocked the corner of Tremont Street and Boylston, across from Boston Common. Ten people were killed and dozens were injured. We explained how the construction of America's first subway led to this disaster and why it was so difficult for survivors to get compensation for their injuries. 
March 4th, 1897 was a typical winter day in Boston. It was cold and clear, but snow-free for the moment. There was an undercurrent of excitement as Boston waited for news from Washington. It was Inauguration Day, and our 25th president, William McKinley, was about to take the oath of office for his first term. Then, as now, the corner of Tremont Street and Boylston was one of the busiest in town, with pedestrians, carriages, and electric and horse-drawn streetcars headed in every direction. It was so busy that the city was at work building the nation's first subway underfoot to try to alleviate some of the chronic congestion. At about 11.45 a.m., three streetcars were passing the corner. A Huntington Avenue car headed north, a Back Bay car headed south, and a Mount Auburn car headed east toward Washington Street. The Mount Auburn car had to turn right from Tremont onto Boylston, just as the Green Line turns right on its way out of Boylston Street Station on the way to Arlington today. As the car made its turn, its wheels screeched and sparked. Suddenly, the ground erupted in a giant explosion. Soil, wood beams, and iron tracks were thrown into the air. Flames shot up higher than the rooftops, and even the streetcars were thrown ten feet into the air. According to the next morning's globe, they shot off the rails and skyward, a distance varying four to ten feet. They descended, twisted, and breaking iron flames and grinding wood into powder. The passengers within. Happy, jovial on Inauguration Day, not suspecting a danger a moment before, found themselves then with bleeding faces and broken limbs, imprisoned under a mass of wreckage which had caught fire. The breathless body of a conductor lay in plain sight just beyond the tangle. A back bay car was hoisted highest in the air. Guilford D. Bigelow, the conductor, was killed outright, and Benjamin R. Sargent, the driver was injured fatally, it is believed by the doctors who attended him. The two horses that furnished the motive power were mangled beneath an electric, which descended upon them with its great weight. A Mount Auburn car, inbound, took a toss, was enwrapped in flames, and was soon in ashes. Paul Hackett, the conductor, suffered two broken legs. A reservoir car lost all its windows and was a sorry-looking sight, although it stuck to the track. Six people were killed almost immediately, and hundreds of bystanders rushed to pull the injured from the wreckage as flames continued to shoot from the ground and the live wires from the streetcars sparked and snapped. We'll post pictures in the show notes to give you a sense of the scale of destruction. Streetcars and construction timbers were smashed to toothpicks. Horses were crushed under streetcars or blown free and disemboweled. Windows shattered for blocks around, Clock stopped at 11.47 sharp. While a barber was giving a haircut on the second floor of a nearby building, he was blown across the room and injured by flying glass. The fire and police departments responded quickly and were able to shut the gas and electricity off and bring the blaze under control. As the smoke cleared, survivors quickly realized that there had been a massive gas explosion and that it had something to do with the construction of the subway. To understand what happened that morning and why it shook the collective Boston psyche, it's important to understand the fraught relationship the city had with the new subway being built beneath their feet. Boston in the late 19th century was something of a boom town. The population had been swelled by immigration from Ireland, and the bounds of the city were being expanded by both filling in the tide flats along the Back Bay and the waterfront, 
and by annexing the surrounding towns of Roxbury, Dorchester, Brighton, Charlestown, and West Roxbury. Railroads had opened up commerce with areas not connected by water, and our factories, merchants, and financial services were booming. This rapid growth and economic success overwhelmed the city's street grid, which was still a relic of the 1600s in many ways. While some residents of Boston still lived within walking distance of their jobs, the new railways offered commuted rates for day passengers without baggage, allowing workers to begin commuting from the suburbs. Private carriages, hackney cabs, and heavy wagons were all pulled by horses. By 1888, the West End Street Railway Company was operating thousands of streetcars, some drawn by horses, and others propelled by electric motors powered by overhead wires. While the streetcars enabled people to get around, they did little to alleviate congestion, as they ran on the already crowded streets. The section of Tremont Street between Scully Square and Boylston Street was pure havoc. It carried shoppers to and from the main shopping districts, as well as office workers and government officials headed to Beacon Hill. By the 1880s, streetcars would pack Tremont Street end-to-end at rush hour, and people said that one could walk from Tremont Temple to the Masonic Temple on their roofs, without ever setting foot on the ground. The city was desperate to find ways to get some of this traffic off the streets, and was considering two competing proposals. One was the brainchild of Josiah V. Meggs of Lowell. It was known as the Meggs Elevated Railway, and it would have been a steam-powered monorail running on an elevated track. What's it called? Once again! Meggs was all in on this idea, going as far as building a large test track in East Cambridge, where steam locomotives ran on a 22-inch track 18 feet above the ground. City and state officials were whisked on an exciting ride of 20 miles an hour or more, around curves and up and down grades. We'll have a link in this week's show notes to pictures of the test track and to a Globe editorial arguing in favor of the elevated railway. It was a strong contender to be Boston's mass transit upgrade, but nature got in the way. In March of 1888, a terrible storm swept through Boston. Known as the Snow Hurricane, it dumped up to 60 inches of snow on the region and killed over 400 people. Cities were paralyzed for weeks as carts, streetcars, and even railroads were immobilized while the snow was being cleared. The snow hurricane was a tipping point in the selection of the competing transit proposal, a subway. The idea of running an underground railroad wasn't entirely new. London had steam trains running underground since 1863, and was in the process of constructing an electrified subway that would open in 1890. Boston decided to follow suit, building the first section of the Tremont Street subway in the 1890s. The decision to create a subway was not without controversy. In 1894, a citywide proposal to build the subway passed by a mere 1,200 votes. At the time, the underground world was viewed with a great deal of suspicion. That's where rats and snakes came from, and where sewage and dead bodies went to. It was the realm of the devil, of unknown germs and evil spirits. As Charles Bond put it, the underground was seen as the realm of Lucifer himself, inhabited by lost souls, moldering corpses, strange forms of animal life, and noxious vapors. A newly formed anti-subway league gathered signatures on petitions against the subway and planted editorials in the Boston Post with titles like Hideous Germs Lurk in the Underground Air. 
they claimed that there was a new strain of subway microbes that were poised to strike subway commuters. They even published an artist rendition of these microbes. And you can bet we'll have a copy of it in this week's show notes. After the groundbreaking ceremony for the subway in March of 1895, the Boston Daily Advertiser claimed that the excavated dirt was killing the trees in the Boston Public Garden. They said, Wherever the earth dredged up from the subway cribs has been spread over the ground, the trees have been sickened. Some of them have died. Why should this foul, poisonous sod be laid out in the city's parks to perfume the neighborhood and spread disease germs over the surrounding regions? The process of building the original subway tunnel was, in many ways, simpler than you're probably imagining. It used a technique called cut and cover, which basically means just digging a trench large enough for the tracks, putting a roof over it, and then adding the soil back on top. The era of deep tunnel boring machines was still well in the future. The first stretch of tunnel would reach from an underground turnaround at Park Street, along Tremont Street, under the corner of the common, and then exit through a portal onto the public garden. Construction of this first tunnel hadn't progressed very far when workers made a gory discovery. As they dug along the edge of Boston Common, they began unearthing human bones. Planners had worried that the tunnel might run into a few unmarked graves near the edges of Central Burying Ground, but a month after the groundbreaking, workers were finding more bones than expected. In the end, over 900 bodies were exhumed from the common and the margins of Central Burying Ground, from unmarked graves that may have included British soldiers who had occupied the common during the opening months of the Revolution. In the end, all the bodies were buried in a communal grave at Central Burying Ground, which is today marked with a single stone that says, Here were reinterred the remains of persons found under the Boylston Street Mall during the digging of the subway, 1895. We'll have a picture of the stone in this week's show notes. With those grave discoveries fresh in Boston's memories, there is a strong undertone of anti-subway sentiment when people began reporting gas leaks along Boylston Street in December of 1896. The Boston Gaslight Company played a cat-and-mouse game for the next three months, fixing leaks as quickly as they could be located. There were over 2,000 reported leaks between December of 1896 and March of 1897. Construction work on the subway could only be carried out at night, so the busy streets could be open to traffic during the day. At about 3 a.m. on March 4, 1897, a crew under James Groke was backfilling soil over the new tunnel at the corner of Tremont and Boylston. They lifted a section of the wooden decking that served as a temporary roadway, dumped two cartloads of soil into the trench, and tightly packed the soil with iron tampers. In the trench with them were pipes carrying water, sewage, electric cables, and natural gas. By 7 in the morning, the soil was packed, the decking was back in place, and traffic was beginning to pick up on Tremont Street. As March 4th progressed, businesses along Boylston Street were having trouble with their gas appliances. The smell of gas had been getting worse over time. It had recently been blamed for the death of a cat in the basement of a health food store along Tremont, and sometimes the smell got so bad that people in apartments along Tremont had to abandon their homes until it cleared up. Each time, the gas company would make repairs, but warned customers that the smell was likely to come back, blaming the subway work. On this morning, it was worse than ever before. A policeman on patrol tried to find the source, searching near the Masonic Temple on Washington Street. 
Two dentists in different offices on Boylston complained that they didn't have enough gas pressure to sterilize their instruments. The gas company was called, but they also searched along Washington Street, rather than at the corner of Boylston and Tremont. Natural gas is methane, which is lighter than air. In many cases, a leak will simply result in the gas dissipating harmlessly into the atmosphere. However, when construction caused the large leak on March 4, 1897, the gas became trapped in the construction space under the temporary wooden decking at the corner of Tremont and Boylston. As that Mount Auburn trolley rounded the corner onto Boylston Street, its screeching wheels caused a spark, the spark met that pocket of gas, and the world erupted into flame. As the smoke cleared, six people lay dead. George Bigelow, conductor of the Back Bay trolley, was killed as his streetcar was blasted to pieces. Reverend W.A. Start, the bursar at Tufts College, was walking down the sidewalk in front of the Hotel Pelham and was killed by the initial blast. William Vinnell, private secretary to a well-known Boston banker, was riding in a coupe carriage driven by Benjamin Downing. Both men were killed as the carriage was destroyed. Delano Sibley, a cab driver, happened to be passing the scene and was killed by the blast. And Amelia M. Bates, a 70-year-old woman, was riding in a private carriage with her sister. She suffered a terrible death as she was trapped inside the carriage as it burned, while her sister watched helplessly. Dozens were injured, and four more would die in the coming days. In the pictures we'll post in the show notes, you'll see the surprising scale of the destruction. Timbers and rails were tangled like pickup sticks. Dead horses lay in the streets. Trolleys were blown to pieces, and a large crater stood in the middle of the street. Cleanup had to begin immediately. By summer, test cars were running through the subway tunnel, and on September 1st, 1897, America's first subway officially opened. The tunnels were well lit, and the stations were brightly whitewashed, allaying the fears of the anti-subway league. The subway project was quickly put back on track, but the same couldn't be said for the victims of the explosion. Many suffered terrible injuries and would try to sue to recover their medical bills and damages. However, the tangled web of government and private contractors involved in constructing the subway made this a very difficult prospect. Wolf Copeland, who had been a 15-year-old shoeshine boy at the time of the explosion, suffered serious cuts, a head injury, and permanently lost the hearing in his right ear. He quickly filed a lawsuit against the City of Boston, the Metropolitan Construction Company, the West End Street Railway Company, the Boston Gaslight Company, the Bay State Gas Company, the Edison Illuminating Company, and the Boston Electric Light Company. After only seven hours of deliberation, a jury awarded him a $3,000 judgment against the city, the West End Street Railway Company, and the Boston Gas Light Company. However, almost four years later, his victory was still tied up in appeals at the end of the year 1900. All that sounds eerily similar to the gas explosion we are personally acquainted with. In 2009, a house exploded near our home in Reedville. A subcontractor was excavating to replace water mains, but they damaged a gas main and the house's basement quickly filled with gas. Luckily, nobody was home because the house exploded moments later, leveling that house and damaging many around it. As the insurance companies tried to determine culpability, the city water and sewer department, the gas company, a contractor, the subcontractor, and the dig safe service became tangled in a web of lawsuits. 
The couple rented a home while also paying a mortgage on a hole in the ground. Their case was not resolved until 2015, much like poor Wolf Copeland. In episode 39, we discussed the tragedy at the Coconut Grove. The 1942 fire at Boston's premier nightclub killed a staggering 492 people, making it the deadliest fire in Boston history and one of the deadliest fires in U.S. history. We'll tell the story through firsthand accounts of survivors. In November 1942, Boston was a city on wartime footing. The Boston Harbor Islands bristled with artillery, and the harbor itself was filled with underwater mines and submarine nets. Germany had declared war on the U.S. a year earlier, just days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Throughout the summer and fall of 1942, German U-boats dominated the waters off Massachusetts, sinking over 500 ships. At the peak, they sank one ship every four hours, sometimes within sight of the Boston skyline. The mines and nets were meant to deter the German submarines, and a blackout that summer was meant to prevent ships from being silhouetted against the bright coast in the crosshairs of a periscope. As the holidays approached, it was a bittersweet season. Many families had fathers, sons, and brothers serving far away in the Atlantic or Pacific theaters. Gas and heating oil were being rationed for civilian use, and ration coupon books controlled the supply of household staples. Stores couldn't put up their usual elaborate window displays for holiday shoppers, and lighted public trees and window candles were strictly forbidden due to the blackout. Civil defense posters hung in the streets, reminding citizens about the potential for air raids, saying, This war is not like any other. It may reach your street, your home, at any moment. You may be fighting in this war tomorrow, or next week, or next month. Your government asks of you one simple thing, but one very important thing. Learn and remember what to do if enemy planes and bombs come. They tell you what to do if you're at home when enemy planes come, or at school, or in a car, and they warn, critically, not to take shelter in Boston subway tunnels, as they are not safe from bombs. Ironically, the national crisis meant that Boston, like many industrial cities around the country, was booming. Factories in the city and suburbs were cranking out materials for the war, while Hingham produced thousands of tons of ammunition and bombs for the Allies. Shipyards in Charlestown, South Boston, Quincy, and Hingham built new ships for the U.S. Navy and Allies faster than German U-boats could sink them. It may have been a somber time in the country, but young people are the same in any era. The city was full of young sailors and soldiers, as well as factory workers, including young women who now had their own independent incomes to spend. They were looking for drinking, dancing, and a brief escape from the grim reality of wartime. They could find that escape in Boston's nightclubs, many of which were located in Roxbury in the South End. You had the Savoy Cafe, the Hi-Hat, the Roseland Ballroom, where a young Malcolm X worked shining shoes, the Cotton Club, and, of course, the Coconut Grove. As one article described it, in the early 40s, the Coconut Grove was the brightest star in the firmament of Boston nightclubs. The Grove was located in a former factory and parking garage between Broadway, Piedmont, and Tremont Streets, near the Theater District, and just steps from Park Square. The club had been opened in 1927 by two local big band leaders, Mickey Alpert and Jacques Renard. They weren't able to make it profitable, and soon Charles King Solomon, leader of Boston's Jewish organized crime syndicate, 
stepped in to provide financing. He took over ownership of the club in 1931, and it was soon profitable. On paper, at least. Solomon slashed costs dramatically by bringing in underpaid teenage staff, performing shoddy repairs on the building, and by cracking down on the old dine-and-dash by bricking up some exits and bolting others closed. However, it's hard to tell how much of the club's newfound success was due to these measures, and how much was because Boston Charlie was using the club to launder money from his vast criminal enterprise. In 1933, King Solomon was shot and killed in the nearby Cotton Club, which he also owned. At that point, ownership of the Coconut Grove fell to one of his attorneys, Barney Wolanski, who took over just as Prohibition was ending. According to the Coconut Grove Coalition, Wolanski brought in Reuben Bodenhorn, a prominent Boston interior designer, to redesign the interior to make the club more family-oriented. It was Bodenhorn who brought in the tropical theme, with artificial palm trees, blue satin ceilings, dance floor, bandstand, and rolling platform stage. Above was a retractable roof for warm, starlit nights. Island-themed decorations installed in the Melody Lounge, the Caricature Bar, and the main dining room included blue satin cloth applied to the ceilings and walls, with airspace between the cloth and wooden furring underneath. The trunks of artificial palm trees were wrapped with loose vegetable fiber, and the palm branches reached nearly to the ceiling. The trees, of course, were equipped with electric lights. A Boston Globe retrospective describes what an arriving clubgoer would have seen in November of 1942. Passing through revolving doors of the main entrance on Piedmont Street, one came into a beautiful foyer with deep, plush carpeting. Beyond this and to the right was the swank main dining room with its seven large, realistically exotic, artificial palm trees flanking the dance floor. Facing the dining room was the spacious caricature bar, boasting the longest counter in Boston. The new lounge at the Broadway side of the club was a popular retreat for businessmen and the latest structural addition. Just below the revolving doors on Piedmont Street was a basement bar called the Melody Lounge. While this might sound straightforward, in reality, the club was a confusing warren of bars, coat checks, storage closets, dressing rooms, kitchens, and stairwells, with one of the levels located underground. The establishment had a posted capacity of 460 people, but on the night of November 28th, there were almost a thousand people packed into the many available dining rooms and bars. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and people were ready to celebrate, despite the wartime atmosphere. At the time, there was a heated football rivalry between Holy Cross and Boston College, and they played each other that day at Fenway Park. Holy Cross won in a surprise upset, so some sports fans were looking to drown their sorrows. And to top it all off, the new lounge on Broadway had opened just a week before, and patrons were eager to check it out. Just after 10 that evening, the house band was about to go on stage in the main dining room. Coincidentally, the band leader that night was Mickey Alpert, one of the original owners of the club. Downstairs in the Melody Lounge, the atmosphere was intimate. Low wattage bulbs peeked out between the palm fronds and rattan wrappings, barely providing enough light to see. A young woman named Gorizia Goodell, who went by the stage name Goody, was playing piano and crooning the hits of the day from a rotating stage. In her handwritten memories of that evening, she would say, As the stage revolved, I looked at my watch, 10.15pm. Heard the bartender tell the 14-year-old busboy to put the bulb back in the tree as people wanted to be in the dark. That busboy, 
who was actually all of 16 years old, was Stanley Tomaszewski. The New England Historical Society describes the scene. In a packed basement lounge, a serviceman and his date sat next to a fake palm tree with a seven and a half watt light bulb sticking out from a laminated coconut husk. The soldier reached over and unscrewed the light bulb so he could kiss his date in the dark. The bartender noticed and told Tomaszewski to go screw it back in. Tomaszewski climbed a bar stool but couldn't see much in the dark corner. He lit a match, held it in his right hand, and screwed in the light bulb with his left. Then he climbed down from the bar stool, dropped the match on the floor, and put it out with his foot. It was 10.15 p.m. Within eight minutes, nearly 500 people would be dead or about to die. While many in Boston would blame young Stanley for the ensuing fire, the fire commissioner held him blameless in the final report. A busboy, aged 16, employed by the Coconut Grove on the night of the fire, testified to lighting a match in the process of replacing an electric light bulb in the corner of the Melody Lounge, where the fire started, and dropping the match to the floor and stepping upon it. After a careful study of all the evidence, and an analysis of all the facts presented before me, I am unable to find the conduct of this boy was the cause of the fire. Some newspapers seem to have been nostalgic for prohibition and blamed alcohol fumes for the fire. They claimed that the alcohol coming from people's breath and their glasses on the bar became concentrated enough to be an accelerant. However, a report from the National Fire Prevention Association contradicts this theory, saying, It does not seem possible that there could have been sufficient alcohol vapor in the breath to have created a flammable mixture in the Melody Lounge. Evaporation from drinks on tables in sufficient quantity to furnish a flammable mixture is not theoretically possible. The Coconut Grove Coalition identifies another possible cause of the fire, faulty wiring. Electrical work done in the Melody Lounge three years prior to the fire, and to the new Broadway Lounge in the two months prior, was done by Raymond Baer, a pipe fitter who was not licensed as an electrician. Baer was interviewed and admitted that he had performed electrical work in the Coconut Grove in October and November of 1942 installing electrical fixtures in the new Broadway lounge. He also said that there was no permit issued for the electrical contracting. The fire commissioner's report would be inconclusive, saying, I have investigated and carefully considered as possible causes of the fire the following suggested possibilities. Alcoholic fumes, inflammable insecticides, motion picture film scraps, electrical wiring, gasoline or fuel oil fumes, refrigerant gases, and flame-proofing chemicals. There is no evidence before me to support a finding that any of these, or any combination of them, caused this fire. This fire will be entered into the records of this department as being of unknown origin. No matter the cause of the fire, the next five to ten minutes were the deadliest moments in Boston history. And just as a side note here, we're going to be quoting extensively from the original fire commissioner's report, a 1970 report in which Boston Fire Chief Fahey revisited the Coconut Grove fire, Goody Goodell's account, and the Globe's 35th anniversary retrospective. The fire originated in the Melody Lounge. In my opinion, it started about 10.15 p.m. It was first seen burning in a palm tree and in the suspended false ceiling in the northwest corner of that room. This prelude to disaster progressed unnoticed for a moment. A few patrons viewed the curling flames as they danced through the satin layers above. The leaping fire was a source of comedy for some, and they laughed. The bartender squirted seltzer water at the flames, which provoked them to burn brighter. The room temperature increased considerably. 
Then the leatherette wallboards in Rattan burst into flames, and it was no laughing matter. Goody Goodell saw the flames immediately, writing, My fingers froze on the piano keys. I kept saying, Don't panic, don't panic. I was up and down on the bench. Fire caught on the tufted ceiling, and I ran from the piano to an opening in the bar to get out, grabbing the cashier behind me. She didn't want to leave the register. I told her, You can come back if they put it out. We went into the kitchen, which I found two nights before. They were all busy. I told them the lounge was on fire. They thought I was pulling a joke. From this point on, the fire spread incredibly rapidly. The fire immediately spread throughout the Melody Lounge, along the underside of the false ceiling. It reached and ascended the stairway. As soon as the flames began to spread, the electric lights failed, plunging the building into darkness. Hundreds of people jammed into the stairwell leading up from the underground Melody Lounge up to Piedmont Street. Meanwhile, Charlie and Betty Coombs had been celebrating Charlie's promotion that night. Just before the lights failed, Charlie and Betty edged their way towards the concealed corridor door, motivated by the busboy Stanley's nod to come over. Seven or eight other patrons who had kept their heads were also looking around for possible escape and they followed the barboy down the escape corridor into the kitchen. Stanley directed all of them into the larger of the two walk-in refrigerators. As the door closed, prayers were said by most in hope that eventually the firemen would rescue them. Those hoping to make it out onto Piedmont Street were doomed by King Solomon's cost-cutting measures of a decade earlier. A considerable number of deaths were caused by the fact that the door opening on Piedmont Street at the top of the stairway from the Melody Lounge could not be opened by persons who ascended the stairway from that room after the fire was first seen. Although this door was provided with a so-called panic lock, such installation was rendered useless by the existence of another lock which was found in a locked position. Flame appeared in the street floor lobby within two to four minutes after it was first seen in the basement room, and within five minutes entirely traversed the street floor of the main building and had passed to the entrance to the Broadway Lounge. As the fire rushed up the stairway leading from the Melody Lounge, it traveled near the ceiling and above the heads of persons ascending the stairs to make their way out of the building. Some of these persons later testified before me that they threw their coats over their heads to protect themselves against the fire as they ascended the stairway. When the flame appeared in the street floor lobby, it was described as traveling rapidly as a ball of fire below the ceiling. Many witnesses described the flame as of yellowish or bluish color. Goody Goodell was among the people trying to find a way out of the first floor as the room burst into flames around her. We ran up behind the stage as a floor show was going on. Bartender was in front of us. I saw them pulling at the blackout curtains, tearing at them. Door was in between the windows. They tried to open the door, but it was locked inside. Couldn't make it. They tried with a huge two-by-four, to no avail. Then, after the blackout curtains were down, I noticed iron bars going across. Almost hysterical, I kept saying, I'll never fit. I'll never fit through those bars. Then I saw these people holding onto the bars, feet first, and sliding out. Jeanette the cashier went out ahead of me, then I was outside, falling on a pile of sand as they were using it for cement outside the new lounge in front. Jeanette went hysterical, saying, If it wasn't for you, I'd be in there. Jackie Maver was a showgirl at the club, waiting in an upstairs dressing room for her cue to go on stage for her last set of the evening. She was supposed to go on at 10.15, and she wondered why they were running late. Charlie Michelonis, a waiter, burst into the room. 
Girls, there's a bad fire downstairs, he cried. You can't go down there now. It's too hot and the smoke is blinding. He ran across the room and said, I'm going through this window to the adjoining roof. It's our only chance. Follow me, girls. Jackie insisted it was possible to make it down the stairs. They all grabbed hand towels and moistened them. With each girl putting her right hand on the shoulder of the girl ahead, Jackie opened the door. Heavy black smoke was creeping up the stairwell, and the heat was almost unbearable. They descended the narrow staircase gingerly, each girl holding a moist towel to her nostrils, cupped with the left hand for partial breathing. Just three steps from the exit, Jackie glanced to the left and stiffened. The dining room was a holocaust. Patrons struggled in the semi-darkness, staggering into tables and falling over chairs. It was bedlam. Frenzied screams, shouts of frustration, crashing trays and shattering glass. They were among the last to escape. Exits from the foyer were through the revolving door to the street, through the office coat rooms to the street, and this was obstructed by a coat rack and a lock, through the door to the street at the end of the corridor, previously mentioned as being locked, and through the other end of the lobby into the main dining room. Some few persons, including persons coming from the basement Melody Lounge, passed through the revolving doors on Piedmont Streets before the massive flames reached it. The door then appears to have jammed. There was a very great pouring of flames through the exit. The great majority of persons on the street floor had no warning of the fire until flames actually appeared in the lobby. Within two to five minutes of the first appearance of the fire, most of the possible exits, including all exits normally open to the public, were useless. Pouring a fire through such exits made it impossible for humans to pass simultaneously through these exits safely. In the course of such pouring, the mass of burning gaseous material appears to have been depressed from its high elevation within the premises in order to pass through these exits. The finding of bodies piled up at many of the exits is attributable to this fact. At 10.15 p.m., the first fire alarm call came into the fire department headquarters. A truck responded and put out a small fire in a car at the corner of Broadway and Stewart Street. As they packed up to return to the station, firefighters noticed smoke coming from the nearby Coconut Grove and started in that direction. Some of the first fire companies to respond had to abandon their trucks and walk to the club because of cars that were parked blocking the corners of nearby blocks. Upon reaching the nightclub premises, rescue work was immediately begun by the firemen who had responded to the automobile fire. To facilitate this work, hose lines were introduced to reduce the intense heat. Shortly after the firemen gained entrance to the premises, the fire was controlled and the intense heat was abated. Firefighters Reggie Wise and Al Menahan used their axes to smash through glass blocks in the Broadway wall and get inside. In the main lobby, bodies that had been piled eight feet high in front of the jammed revolving door were now laid out in neat rows on the sidewalk outside. In the main dining room in the caricature bar, many had suffocated from the toxic smoke so quickly that they didn't even have time to put down their drinks and stand up from their seats. One woman stood in the middle of the dance floor with a wool coat over her head. She was completely unharmed, but staring blankly as shock rendered her unable to speak. Reggie and Al approached the Melody Lounge stairwell. A spectral horror confronted them as the two men started to descend the stairs. Bodies were floating in 14 inches of water. Ashen-faced victims, many of them unscathed by fire, hung over bar stools and lay across tables. Going through a corridor, the firemen entered the kitchen, which had been untouched by fire. 
They opened the large refrigerator door and saw eight bewildered and groggy patrons who had survived the 40 minutes of hell and the 38-degree temperature of their protective enclosure. In the end, 492 people would die, and at least 166 more were gravely injured, in a fire that lasted barely a half hour. Injured victims were taken to Beth Israel, Boston City Hospital, Mount Auburn, Cambridge City Hospital, Kearney, Chelsea Naval Hospital, Faulkner, Massachusetts General, Massachusetts Memorial, Peter Bent Brigham, St. Elizabeth's, St. Margaret's, and U.S. Marine Hospital. The sudden influx of burn victims at local hospitals led to huge improvements in burn care, especially at Mass General Hospital. Two surgeons there pioneered the fluid resuscitation method of treating burns. Large burns result in the loss of fluid from leaking capillaries, which can keep the heart from providing enough fluid and oxygen to the body's tissue. In fluid resuscitation, the burned areas are lightly wrapped with gauze and saturated in petroleum jelly to help stop fluid loss, while large volume IVs replace the fluid that has already been lost. At the time, penicillin was a barely known wonder drug, mostly reserved for use by the military. However, Merck delivered a supply of 32 liters to Mass General, where it was used to fight the staph infections that are common among burn victims and skin graft patients. The hospital's brand new blood bank was also pressed into action, allowing lost plasma and whole blood to be replaced. Every burn victim taken to Mass General survived, compared to only 30% of those taken to Boston City Hospital. Less than two weeks before the Coconut Grove fire, Six Boston firefighters had been killed fighting a fire at Luongo's Restaurant in East Boston's Maverick Square, where the building they were working in collapsed. And another huge fire broke out in the five-story Salinger's Department Store in Downtown Crossing, just over two weeks after the Coconut Grove. 600 firefighters and a contingent of Coast Guardsmen fought the fire for 10 hours. 65 people were hospitalized, but nobody died. After this season of fire, Christmas of 1942 was a grim holiday in Boston, and the city was ready to embrace improved safety and fire codes. The fire commissioner made a series of recommendations that would be adopted in Boston and would provide the basis for federal fire codes. Automatic sprinklers were required in any restaurant, nightclub, or place of entertainment. Basements were prohibited as places of assembly unless they had at least two direct fire exits with approved fire doors. Emergency exits were required to have panic locks, now known as crash bars, and no other locks. And all fire exits were required to have illuminated exit signs. On December 1, 1942, the city of Boston closed 52 restaurants and nightclubs until their fire protection systems were inspected. Some clubs were able to reopen by December 5th. Others stayed closed for weeks or more, making renovations to meet the new safety standards. The legendary South End Jazz Club, the Savoy Cafe, would stay closed until July 8th of the next year, finally reopening in a new, larger location that conformed to the city's fire code. Some venues never recovered. Steinert Hall was a stunning auditorium built in 1896. It had ornate plaster, Corinthian columns, and impeccable acoustics. Unfortunately, it was constructed some 40 feet underground, under the Steinert Piano Company's headquarters on Boylston Street, across from Boston Common. It has sat empty and slowly crumbling since the city shut it down on December 1st, 1942. 
Club owner Barney Wolanski was convicted of multiple counts of willful manslaughter for the locked exit doors and other safety violations. He was sentenced to 12 to 15 years in prison and released after serving four. Busboy Stanley Tomaszewski endured death threats, insults, and ostracization for most of his life. He graduated from Boston College and worked for the federal government until he retired. By all accounts, he was a good and decent man. He often visited the graves of those who had died in the fire, but told reporters, I don't have a sense of guilt because it wasn't my fault. If I felt guilty, I wouldn't be talking to you. My name would not be on the doorbell and in the telephone book. I never backed away. He died in 1994. Today, urban renewal has altered the street girder on the site of the Coconut Grove, and much of the site is occupied by the Revere Hotel. In 1993, 51 years later, a small bronze plaque was placed in the sidewalk on Piedmont Street near the site of the jammed revolving door that claimed so many lives. It bears a floor plan of the club with the inscription, The Coconut Grove, erected by the Bay Village Neighborhood Association, 1993. In memory of the more than 490 people who died in the Coconut Grove fire on November 28, 1942. As a result of that terrible tragedy, major changes were made in the fire codes and improvements in the treatment of burn victims, not only in Boston, but across the nation. Phoenix out of the ashes. In 2014, the plaque was removed while condos were built on Piedmont Street. And in 2016, it was replaced, but it was moved down the block to a point that was a parking lot in 1942, to be farther away from the entrance to the condos. Owners said, We now occupy these homes with our families as part of the Bay Village neighborhood and would like to enjoy our homes in peace without tragic memories, hanging wreaths at our doors, or tourists peeking into our houses. Unfortunately, the most deadly single event in Boston history is memorialized by an 18-inch plaque in front of a former parking lot. Last up, episode 91. On the evening of July 3rd, 1925, Boston's Pickwick nightclub collapsed while couples packed the dance floor. Dozens were trapped in the rubble while firefighters, police, and laborers worked desperately to free them. In the end, 44 people were killed and many more were injured. A rumor circulated that the disaster had been caused by a popular dance called the Charleston. This fake news soon became one of the most viral stories of the newspaper era, causing many cities to ban couples from dancing the Charleston. On July 4, 1925, tens of thousands of Bostonians celebrated Independence Day with fireworks, public concerts, and parades. A smaller but significant number wanted to start the party early. July 3rd was a Sunday, but hundreds of jubilant young people were going out for the night in anticipation of the next day's holiday. The only problem was the 18th Amendment banning the importation, manufacture, or sale of intoxicating beverages. It had gone into effect five years before, and yet, even at the height of prohibition, there was a rowdy nightlife to be found in Boston, if you knew who to ask. One man who could probably tell you where to find a good time was Timothy Barry, who news reports would refer to pointedly as the treasurer and guiding hand of a Chinatown institution called the Pickwick Club. Located at the corner of Washington and Beach Streets near today's Chinatown Gate, the Pickwick was named for Charles Dickens' first novel, 
The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club. In the book, members of a fictional private club engage in a farcical romp across the English countryside. Their adventures inspired clubs of the same name to spread from New Orleans to Sweden. The Pickwick Club in Boston was referred to as a social club, but with a nod and a wink, as all of the cool kids knew that calling it a social club was just another way to say that it was a speakeasy. Operating as a members-only club gave the Pickwick an advantage over any police officer who might have cared to enforce prohibition. As the Globe describes, Under the law, the nightclubs are not subject to the rules imposed on places of amusement where admission is paid. They are supposed to be open to members only, and the members are supposed to have membership cards. They are not even open to the police unless the police have search warrants. Flashing a membership card gained entrance to the club, which was located on the second floor of a five-story building that was once the Dreyfus Hotel. Once inside, clubgoers could enjoy cocktails mixed with the illicit booze that rum runners nightly smuggled into Boston Harbor, and they could enjoy dancing with their sweethearts. Not only was 1925 the height of Prohibition, it was also nearing the peak of the Jazz Age, and parts of Boston society were having trouble adjusting. You may remember the New England Watch and Ward Society from back in episode 40. They were the stodgy moral police who took it upon themselves to censor the plays that Bostonians could see and ban books they didn't approve of. And as Jazz began taking the world by storm, they were up in arms. The mere idea of couples dancing together drove these moral police into conniptions, as seen here in their 1919 annual report. It seems almost incredible that dancing should have degenerated to so low a plane as it has on some of the modern muscle dances for couples. The name alone of one indicated what it obviously aims to imitate. This dance in Boston is forbidden by Secretary Casey in public entertainments, and when indulged in in private dances has led to expulsions from the hall by police officers. Surreptitiously employed by persons who use it as an introduction to immoral solicitation and other indecent actions and conditions, this year led to the closing of several public dance halls. We have found these types of dances unmolested in cities outside of Boston and are now attempting to have them pronounced legally obscene in the hope that they thus stigmatized will be more generally suppressed. In the field of the dance, with its liberal etiquette, it is not easy to bring about practical results. Unrestrained, there seems to be no limit to which dancing will not descend. A year after Prohibition went into effect, the 1921 Watch and Ward Society annual report spends pages upon pages extolling the moral benefits of the alcohol ban. Then, in a section titled Artificial Stimulants to Immorality, it goes on to identify the next creeping moral threat, one that they were so far powerless to stop. Dancing is another powerful stimulant to loose life. The jazz spirit is a spirit of abandonment. When it manifests itself in the shimmy dance, it is the acme of temptation. We are to be congratulated on the entrance into our police system of women police officers. This is a preventative measure of great importance and none of greater importance than to keep our dance halls well-supervised. While the watch and ward was busy trying to keep young couples from dancing, 
other groups were hard at work trying to ban scandalous tunes like this. There's nothing sure. The rich get rich and the poor get children. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? Later in 1921, a trade magazine for sheet music publishers reported on the tension between young music buyers and Boston's moralistic Brahmins under the title, Naughty Songs Must Go, Avow Women of Boston. In further proof that everything old is new again, the article quotes Mrs. Arthur Davidson of the State Federation of Women's Clubs. Most strenuously, we characterize Ain't We Got Fun and Ma and How Would You Like to Place Your Head on My Pillow as suggestive. These songs are horrible. They should be obliterated. So serious is this matter of double-meaning songs, we almost feel that the fight should be undertaken by the Watch and Ward Society. A sheet music publisher named Billy Moran responds, What do they want anyway? Moran glowered. Do they want popular songs that are hymns? Do they want to take all the joy out of singing? I suppose the reformers think that an artist can write Nearer my God to thee words for a jazz song. Well, I tell you, it can't be done. It's not enough that they've had their way about what we can eat and drink. Now they want to come into our homes and give our pianos the rubberneck to see what kind of music we're singing. We're giving the public what they want, that's all. If the public didn't want Ma, why did it turn out to be one of the biggest jazz hits of the season? The young couples who were spending their Independence Day Eve at the Pickwick Club certainly fell into that latter camp. Jazz was the hottest ticket in town, and no dance was hotter in 1925 than the Charleston. In its typically dry style, Britannica describes the steps that make up the Charleston. Characterized by its toes-in, heels-out, twisting steps, it was performed as a solo, with a partner, or in a group. Mentioned as early as 1903, it was originally a black folk dance known throughout the American South and especially associated with Charleston, South Carolina. Analysis of its movements shows it to have strong parallels in certain dances of Trinidad, Nigeria, and Ghana. In its early form, the dance was highly abandoned and was performed to complex rhythms beaten out by foot stamps and hand claps. About 1920, professional dancers adopted the dance and, after its appearance in the black musical Runnin' Wild in 1923, it became a national craze. As a fashionable ballroom dance, it lost some of the exuberance of the earlier version. Charleston music is in quick 4-4 time with syncopated rhythms. In the basic step, the knees are bent, then straightened, as the feet pivot in and out. Weight is shifted from one leg to the other, the free leg being kicked out from the body at an oblique angle. The basic step is often interspersed with strenuous movements, such as forward and backward kicks while traveling forward. We'll include video of couples dancing the Charleston in this week's show notes. When somebody's good at it, the Charleston is a dynamic, exuberant, and incredibly fluid dance. So, of course, in 1925, it was being denounced from all sides as morally questionable, racially unpure, leading to promiscuity and or sterility, and even sinful. In his book, The Wicked Waltz and Other Scandalous Dances, Mark Knowles quotes a Catholic bishop as saying, Dancing the Charleston is an unpardonable sin. 
and refusing absolution to women who would partake in such an activity. Within a few years, even the city that gave the dance its name wanted to disavow it, as Knowles quotes from a city report. The city of Charleston, South Carolina, objects to having a current dance of the jazz variety tagged with its name. The so-called Charleston, far from flattering the justly proud Charlestonians, is causing them to blush more or less continuously with mortification. It is a rude dance, affected by a portion of the Negro population, and being executed usually in a spirit which is not polite. Let it be known, therefore, that Charleston indignantly disowns the Charleston, whatever may be its intrinsic charm. All that public outrage over the Charleston didn't stop young people from packing the dance floor on July 3rd, 1925. The Pickwick was filled to capacity and beyond, with about 125 guests packed into the small club. Singer John Duffy was leading McLennan's Jazz Orchestra when an employee heard a sound like a granulated substance falling on paper. He found nothing wrong, but a few moments later, drops of water began dotting the dance floor. Knowles picks up the story from there as things began to go horribly wrong. Around 3 a.m., John Duffy finished crooning West of the Great Divide. The crowd shouted for an encore of the song, and the band struck up a snappy jazz version of the tune. The room full of revelers began to Charleston. Some set off firecrackers. Frank Decker, another singer at the club, recalled, At least 50 couples crowded on the dance floor, and they danced like folks gone mad. Before the orchestra had played a dozen notes, I could feel the floor swaying. I heard loud cracks, but thought they were firecrackers. As the dance neared its close, the orchestra speeded up the tempo, and the dancers got crazier than ever. A July 4th AP report describes how merriment turned to terror in a split second. Shortly after three o'clock, without warning, the roof and all five stories went plunging downward in a twisted ruin. One sidewall, next to which an excavation for a new building was being made, buckled in the middle and fell in on a part of the ruin. The front sagged forward and leaned at a crazy angle. Survivors said the crash came with a rumble that resembled an earthquake. Merrymakers in the club had been setting off firecrackers in the early morning hours, and for a moment, the dancers thought that a giant cracker had been exploded. They were on the second floor of the building, and in an instant, the wall and three floors above them came crashing down, crushing the dance floor to the street and onto the basement. The next day's Boston Globe carried a slightly different perspective on the moment of disaster. Rocco, another of the musicians, said suddenly, Aren't these lights getting dim? And Glennon glanced up and agreed. Just then, the colored porter remarked, Look at the sand sifting down from the ceiling. At that, lights winked out, and a second later came the awful crash. To John Owen, who was sitting at a table near the front of the room and somewhat nearer the eastern wall, there seemed to be two distinct occurrences. He said that he first heard a crackling like fireworks and paid little attention to it. Then women cried out, and he suddenly saw the floor drop on the eastern side of the room, leaving a great gaping wound. The dancers, who had just stopped their slow stepping around, 
shouted in alarm, but were gone in an instant. He said he stared in absolute blank astonishment. For the moment, there seemed to be a lull during which he sat in security on a still-standing section of the floor. He stared at the crowd rushing for the narrow door. In another instant, he fell, in the midst of a loud, roaring, smashing noise. He fell two stories, but by chance fell on top of the debris instead of going down under it. Again came that tragic silence of a moment which follows almost every catastrophe. Then, pain and terror had their way. Men and women recovered consciousness deep, deep in that hideous mass of brick, plaster, and timbers, and groaned with the torture, or desperately shouted for help. This was the scene that confronted the first emergency responders to arrive. Boston police officers Neil McDevitt and George Gardner were the first on the scene. Two walls of the building were still standing, though nearly the entire interior had collapsed in on itself, carrying the chairs, tables, walls, floor joists, and dozens of people down to the cellar below. When McDevitt and Gardner showed up, there was a huge dust cloud over the scene, and the night air was torn by the screams of the injured and dying, unseen, under untold tons of debris. The two officers charged up what remained of the club's front stairs, and they managed to free a few injured and trapped victims from the fringes of the ruin, but there was little they could do when faced with the enormity of the disaster. The Globe describes how the building was pancaked in on itself, saying that the four floors were sitting almost flush atop one another. Yet an AP report notes the strange tableaus of normalcy that could be found among the destruction. The collapse did queer things. The corner of the dance floor in which the orchestra sat remained fast, and the piano and bass drums were visible from the street. A vase of flowers sat atop a desk nearby and was undisturbed, as was a bottle of whiskey that was left on a windowsill in the corner. The fire department arrived next, and within 15 minutes they had saturated the scene with floodlights, braced the swaying walls against further collapse, and brought their heavy equipment in to help with the search. It was a grim and desperate task. The Globe describes how rescuers, for a time, seemed to be working in vain. Hearing a voice, the firemen would work down as far as possible and shout, Hello! Help! Get me out! would come back a piteous cry. Here's a woman, the shout would go up, and men would rush to tear at the timbers. They shouted again and again, and finally silence. For a long time, no bodies were reached at all. The AP adds, Voices mostly women's that were heard calling from beneath the wreckage during the early hours, became silent later. Nevertheless, there were people alive under the rubble, and the pace of rescue operations seems not to have slowed. They worked through the night, and the Globe describes the steady stream of emergency vehicles ferrying victims away from the scene. Long before daylight, the ambulances were making racing trips back to the hospitals with their loads of wounded people. Even when a living victim was found, the tangle of beams, joists, wires, and pipes meant that he or she usually couldn't be moved right away. As firefighters and laborers struggled to remove the rubble and free the victims, medical residents and even clergy entered the wreckage to give whatever relief they could, as the AP relates. Firemen and doctors came by the scores and until dawn poked about the ruins with flashlights. Interns from the city hospital crawled beneath the ruins wherever they could, 
giving hypodermic injections to survivors in pain, but who could not be released. A priest from St. James Church, just around the corner, gave absolution to the victims who were carried out. Even doctors entered the hole, performing emergency surgeries under harrowing conditions to help release those who were trapped, as the AP continues. Screams of those caught beneath the brick and wood could be heard by firemen and doctors as they pried their way through the wreckage. From a hole about 20 feet deep in the basement of the building could be heard the cries of women's voices. One man was taken out alive only after physicians had amputated two of his fingers in order to free him from his trap. He laughed and smoked a cigarette while they operated. As day dawned on July 4th, the screams of the injured began to fade, and one by one, they went silent. Finally, with the sun high in the sky, only one voice could be heard from under the rubble. The Boston Globe carried a detailed description of the desperate attempt to free Edith Jordan of Somerville, who was buried about eight feet down, right in the middle of the heap of debris. She was trapped but awake and able to describe her situation. I am lying on my back, she said, and there is a great beam across my chest. There is something else over one thigh, and there are two people lying on my legs. They are dead. Firefighters, police officers, and a group of Italian laborers led by a man named Hugh Non converged on the location and began working together to free the last living soul under the wreckage. Three heavy jacks were put under a corner of a section of floor and held it up like a pent roof. Non's men tore at the heap of brick at the entrance and pitched it out. When they reached timber, the real work began. Joists were brought and stacked up over the top of what was rapidly becoming a tunnel. Then came the mining, the sawing of timbers, the cutting with great shears of the metal ceiling which was folded and twisted all through the hole. All this took time, hours went by, and Mrs. Jordan constantly talked with the men working towards her. Only one, or at most two, could work at a time, and as one came out exhausted, he said invariably the same thing. God, but that woman is game. I want some water, she said. By this time, the men could see her head. Somebody rushed over to a drugstore for a tube and funnel, and the imprisoned woman took a long draft and thanked the man who gave it to her. I want something to eat, she said presently, and chicken soup was brought and fed to her. Presently, she called out again. You know, my husband was with me, and he's in here, she said. No, he isn't, shouted Commissioner Glenn. He's out here waiting for you. That was not strictly true, but her husband was outside and safe, though somewhat injured. Oh, that's good, that's good, said Mrs. Jordan. She told again of the beam resting on her. We're sawing it, said the commissioner. He and Chief Senate hung above the hole, and forty men stood anxious for a chance to do something. Another way was found to the left. The men got to Mrs. Jordan and found that beside the great beam, a metal lathwork was pressing her. This they cut with shears. The beam over her they sawed. Then they dug beneath her. They fastened a life belt around her with a rope and made it fast to a joist, which men outside worked as a lever. Inch by inch, they lifted her, while two gangs of men strained at the tackles that hauled away the timbers at her sides. 
At each gain, they let her body slip down into the hole they had made beneath her. Every tool that was needed, every rope, every bit of timbering, had to be brought up to the teetering timbers, and the work was desperately slow. It was 11.50, nine hours after the building had collapsed, when Mr. Glynn called to the ambulance driver, Get your motor going. A moment later, the stumbling, clumsy men, their faces black with the dirt and dust, passed Mrs. Jordan out to the waiting stretcher and covered her with a blanket. She was herself black, her bare arm was grimed, and still wore a bracelet. Her wavy hair was full of dust, but she was still game. Mrs. Jordan was rushed to Boston City Hospital by noon, but it was too late. She was able to speak to her husband briefly, but she died minutes after arriving. Nobody else would be pulled out of the rubble alive. First responders worked at the collapse site for 50 straight hours, but soon after Mrs. Jordan was removed, the operation moved from rescue to recovery, with heavy winches and steam shovels brought in to pull the wreckage apart in search of the bodies that were still buried. In the end, 44 bodies would be found, making this one of Boston's most deadly disasters up until that point. An Associated Press report from July 7th remembers some of the famous and infamous clubgoers who died that night. Down in the Chinatown district, where the nightlife centered around the ill-fated club, they talked about the gay habitués whose battered bodies were being buried today. They remembered William Toots Murray, against whom indictments were brought in connection with the bromide gas bomb incident in the Rhode Island State Senate Chamber a year ago. The boxing fraternity mourned for Frank Tillo and Ned O'Flanagan, local ring favorites. While over at Station 4, they were raising a purse for the relatives of Lieutenant Inspector Benny Alexander, who died while waiting for the man he was trailing to visit his accustomed haunt. And for the family of patrolman Paul Halloran, detailed to guard the club. While rescuers were still tearing through the wreckage looking for bodies, and while the victims were being remembered, Boston was already looking for someone to blame. On July 4th, the city building inspector blamed the collapse on overcrowding and on the construction work that was going on in the building next door. A statement from Building Commissioner John H. Mahoney and John M. Casey, chief of the licensing division of the city, placed the blame for the collapse on overcrowded conditions in the night resort. Considering the fact that no official with authority to prevent overcrowding was present, the statement said, it is probable that the management took advantage of the night before crowds and readily accepted all who came. The building was undergoing alterations. The work was not completed. The club occupants apparently overcrowded the premises beyond the strength of the floors. On July 5th, police shot one looter and arrested several more. On July 6th, as workers were still pulling apart the wreckage in search of bodies, a grand jury was convened and spent 16 hours examining the site and questioning witnesses. They took an immediate interest in the owners and officers of the Pickwick, and the AP reported that at least one of them was nowhere to be found. Timothy J. Barry, proprietor-manager of the club, has not been seen, nor has his body been found. The authorities want to question him. The floor manager, James F. Glennon, died with his guests. On July 7th, a number of contractors who were working on the building next door were arrested, 
along with the city building inspector who had signed off on the work, and on the 11th, sealed indictments were handed down against them. On the 14th, architect Henry Haven was arrested, and he was charged with manslaughter for his role in planning the building under construction next door to the Pickwick. By Thursday the 16th, a dozen men had been indicted, they had all pled not guilty, and the trial was set to commence the following Monday. All were acquitted at trial, where the true facts behind the collapse came out. In The Wicked Waltz, Knowles cites trial coverage from the Chicago Daily Herald, the Kingston Daily Freeman, the New York Times, and the Bridgeport Telegram to assemble this explanation of what happened. At the trial, engineer Hugh Stanley Yerkehart testified that he had actually inspected the building supports on Friday, the day before the catastrophe, and discovered that the earth surrounding the concrete piers had been dug away. He further stated that he had warned Hyman Bloomberg, who was the lessee of the building, that this presented an imminent danger. Other contributing factors to the building's collapse were a fire that had occurred about four months earlier on April 13th. Firemen who had put out the fire testified before the grand jury that they had dumped at least 7,000 gallons of water on the second floor to extinguish the flames. William F. Glennon, who was the orchestra leader and brother of the club's manager, testified that after the fire, the dance floor had been moved from the center of the club to the side, near the Beach Street wall. James J. Hendrick, Boston building inspector, had actually inspected the structure 48 hours before the disaster and pronounced it safe. After the accident, he stated, Although some of the woodwork was charred, the supporting timbers were not sufficiently damaged to warrant installation of new beams. On Wednesday, July 1st, three days before the collapse, there was a heavy wind and rainstorm in Boston, and part of the building's roof had blown off, soaking the dance floor with water. A hole had been chopped in the floor to let the water drain off into the basement. Former Lieutenant Governor Barry, who helped with the rescue efforts, commented, I had feared this disaster weeks before it happened. Several days ago, I passed by the building, and its condition shocked and astounded me. I could not understand why the building had not been condemned. I saw that 50 supporting timbers and a sidewall had been damaged by the recent fire. Ever since, I thought the building should be condemned. Its condition suggested a crash. At the trial, engineer General George W. Gerthels, who had supervised the construction of the Panama Canal, revealed that the collapse was due to Pier 2 giving away, triggering the breaking of the other building supports. In his testimony, he stated that Pier 2 was constructed of the rottenest concrete I had ever seen. So the building had been weakened by fire, undermined by construction, and soaked by rain until the structure just couldn't take any more and gave way. The collapse of the building may have been caused by this unlikely confluence of events, but in the public's eye, there was another culprit. The fact that the collapse came at the moment when the crowd began dancing the Charleston seemed like more than a coincidence to the average newspaper subscriber in 1925. The July 6th edition of the Washington, D.C. Evening Star made the connection. The collapse came while the floor was filled with dancers. The conclusion is obvious. 
that the vibration caused by the dancing of a large number of people precipitated the accident. Even on the night of the disaster, officials in Boston were worried about the effect that Charleston might have on other clubs in town, as the Globe reported. Upon hearing the facts, and hearing the rumor that similar dancing is going on in the Phalanx Club of Roxbury, better known as the Black and White Club, and in the Lambs Club in the Back Bay, Building Commissioner Mahoney peremptorily ordered these clubs closed. The Pickwick collapse was about as viral as a newspaper-era story could get. It had everything. Death and destruction, illicit dancing, illegal speakeasies. And as the story crisscrossed the country, the Charleston took the blame, with communities all around the country banning or curtailing what was becoming known as the Dance of Death. In Passaic, New Jersey, the police chief banned the dance on public safety grounds, saying, The Charleston is all right morally, so far as I know, but we do not want any casualties here because of it. In Texas, an op-ed in the San Antonio Light said, Reformers and moralists of all sorts look upon the Charleston as perhaps the most harmless of all dances since the stately minuet. It violates no laws, no codes of which they know anything. But to the structural engineer, it is a menace, an invention of the devil, monkeying with the laws of vibration and the building codes. The tango may be a home wrecker, but the Charleston is a house wrecker. And an official statement in Kansas City said, The Charleston dance may shake the foundations of public morality all at once to, but when it weakens the foundations of buildings housing dance floors, it ought to be stopped. That's some fake news. <laughs> and banning a dance as dangerous to the threat of public safety, health, and morals is not effective in getting the kids to stop dancing. The Charleston craze would continue undisturbed by rumors of its destructive power, spreading from Boston to Seattle and from Sydney to London. Before long, even respectable dancing schools were teaching the Charleston, though they did make a few changes for decency's sake. The AP hints at how the Charleston was both accepted and tamed by the powers that be. August 25th. The Charleston has officially come into its own. But if the Society of American Teachers of Dancing has its way, it will be a dance of dignity, censored to win the favor of people of culture. The battle for recognition of the Charleston nearly split the Dancing Masters Convention here yesterday. New England representatives especially protested because the rhythmic swaying, clicking of heels, and stamping of feet was alleged to have caved in the Pickwick Club in Boston on the night of July 3rd, causing the deaths of 35 persons. It was finally agreed that the flapper and chic mode of doing the dance was to be combated. The glorified Charleston was demonstrated in the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom. The kicks, suggestive movements, and complex motions were eliminated. The feet must not be more than 45 degrees out of line with the body, and there must be no leaning backward. Only two years later, though, the Charleston was already being supplanted by the Lindy Hop and other new dances. But the next time somebody is complaining about twerking, or the Humpty Dance, or whatever the kids are doing these days, just remember that your grandparents probably danced the sinful Charleston the dance of death, and you turned out okay.
To learn more about this series of disasters, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 118. We'll have links and sources for each of these stories. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and my dearest friend, this week's Boston Book Club pick. It's been quite a while since we shared listener feedback. A while ago, a listener who goes by the Stentorian Historian on Twitter caught up with our show on the Halifax tree and said, Heck of a friendship gift. It's late and I'm tired, so rather than explain it myself, I refer you to the excellent episode Hub History did on the 1917 Halifax explosion and how Boston ended up with such a massive tree each year as a result. Sam wrote in about our episode on Prescott Townsend, the eccentric Boston bohemian. Another chapter of gay history, not to be missed. What a great hidden chapter of gay history. Thanks for making this. Boston Maggie had a very simple response to our recent show about how Boston invented time zones. You had me at Boston Standard Time. Another listener who goes by Boston Auto tweeted, Just finished Barons of the Sea by Stephen Ujafusa. A fantastic book filled with familiar names and places, well told. Here's some of the story on Hub History. And Michael Troy, the host of the AMREV podcast about the American Revolution, said, I'm woefully behind on listening to podcasts. I finally got to the Christian Despina interview on Hub History about Joseph Warren. He really was critical to the early part of the war before Washington arrived. I've got to get this book, Founding Martyr, soon. More recently, Amanda tweeted that she was listening to episode 116 about the innovative educator Horace Mann. Curled up on the couch in my Westfield State t-shirt, listening to Hub History discuss Horace Mann. And this week, Lauren emailed to say, I've had a bad cold for the past four days. Luckily, I downloaded all your podcasts and have been going through them from the beginning. Today, I reached the two episodes from last September on the 1918 flu pandemic, which gave me a couple hours of hypochondria. You've been good company, but I hope I get well before I run out of back episodes. I know a lot of Boston history, but I'd never heard of Mel Lyman or the Fort Hill community. That was a fascinating chapter, and it sent me off to the internet to learn more. So thanks. If you want to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255, where you can call and leave us a voicemail. We'd love to get some audio feedback that we can share in a future episode. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link to be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs>